Anyway, we want to plug that excellent book by Craig Unger one more time, House of Bush, House of Saud. And someone else we've been thinking about bringing on this program for, I don't know, 10 years, is author James Bamford. He has written three books about the National Security Agency, which, as you may have noted, has been somewhat in the news of late. At some point in a few minutes, I think we're going to refer to his second book, Body of Secrets, and talk about something that happened 50 years ago this month. Something that, well, the powers that be decided to bury, and bury they did. But Radio Parallax, being that dog in the backyard digging and digging to find the bone that was buried, will do what we can to uncover things a bit. You know, but what I really want to do is quote from a book I was given by, oddly enough, Mr. McMillan, titled 5,000 Side-Splitting Jokes and One-Liners. If the truth be told, there's 5,000 so-called jokes and one-liners in this book, but of the side-splitting variety, we would venture to guess there are perhaps, perhaps 50. Which, you know, I guess one out of 100 isn't too bad. You know, since I have the book in my right hand right now, let, let's just throw a few out there, shall we? Here's a few we like, all right? A good friend will help you move. A great friend will help you move a body. How about rain is just a bunch of humidity that's tired of living a lie? How about, I asked my date what she wanted to drink. She said, oh, I guess I'll have some Dom Perignon. I said, well, guess again. It's one we've used before, but... Since it's coming to us from this book, we'll use it again. Many a man owes his success to his first wife and his second wife to his success. <laughs> Here's one I can't resist. I hate it when people say, oh, I'm a vegetarian except for fish. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm a non-smoker except for cigarettes. How about this one? Why do Americans choose from just two contenders for president but 50 for Miss America? Valid question. How about this one? If you loan somebody $20 and never see that person again, it was probably worth it. Another old standby. Science flies you to the moon. Religion flies you into buildings. (laughs) And finally this one. My action figure would come with action sold separately. We mentioned on last week's program the passing of a great James Bond, Sir Roger Moore. And um, apparently Roger Moore once said, you can either grow old gracefully or begrudgingly. I chose both. And for someone we've thought about having on the program more than once, political strategist Roger Stone, we have this. One man's dirty trick is another man's civic participation. Yeah, well, Roger Stone's civic participation often consists of dirty tricks. But we were intrigued by his book about uh, Lyndon Johnson's possible involvement in the John Kennedy assassination. Just that I certainly respect the opinion of a lot of high-quality researchers in that particular endeavor, who, suffice it to say, have noted that um, the crime cannot be pinned upon LBJ. Though, like many, we suspect he may well have known it was going to happen. And, of course, once it did happen, it was in his interest to make sure that the true story never came out. To this day, it never has. 
How about a stat for the day? Which is that the seven highest paid U.S. CEOs in the year 2016 were all media executives. Thomas Rutledge of Charter Communications led the list, making $98 million, followed by Les Moonves of CBS with $68 million, and Walt Disney's Robert Iger with $41 million. That's according to businessinsider.com. And of course, we all know that the mainstream media in this country is pushing the socialist agenda. Actually, if you refer to selective socialism, it may not be completely wrong. I do want to thank a roommate of mine from many decades ago, Mr. Scott Underwood, actually a doctor, now Dr. Scott Underwood, for coining that term, selective socialism. Now, another stat for today's program from the Associated Press notes that world coal production fell by 6.2%. That is the biggest drop ever recorded, according to BP's annual review of energy trends. China's coal production fell by nearly 8%, while U.S. production dropped 19%. Renewable energy production increased by 14%, with China overtaking the U.S. as the world's largest provider of renewable power. For our anecdote for today's program, I think we'll go with this item. Apparently, a Mississippi lawmaker said that civic leaders who order the removal of Confederate symbols should be lynched in a widely shared Facebook post. Representative Carl Oliver compared the removal to Nazi book burnings and called them a heinous and horrific attack on the loving memory of our fellow Southern Americans. He did later apologize for using the word lynched. And another news regarding our fellow Southern Americans, we have former Alabama Senator Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, currently our Attorney General, who, as we noted on this program last week, has instructed federal prosecutors to charge defendants with the most serious provable offenses carrying the stiffest penalties. The Attorney General has stated that people who smoke marijuana are not good people. This correspondent would like to note that I know several people who regularly smoke marijuana, and I think they're okay. And I think we just did several jokes for today's program, and we've got that covered. I think we want to add one more, which surprisingly comes from the gerrymandering ruling of the Supreme Court. As you may have noted a couple weeks back, the Supreme Court struck down two congressional districts in North Carolina, ruling that the state's Republican-controlled legislature had relied too heavily on race when redrawing the district lines after the 2010 census. Republican lawmakers were accused of packing African-American voters into two districts in order to dilute their vote, which tends to lean Democratic. One district, described as the Serpentine District 12, was appearing before the justices for the fifth time. It should be noted that disgraceful Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito tried to argue that the district had merely been packed with Democratic voters who happened to be black. But in this instance, conservative Justice Clarence Thomas, who is black, joined the court's four liberal justices in striking the district down five to three. Evidently, another electoral area, District 1, whose shape critics have likened to an octopus, was struck down eight to nothing. Legal experts say the ruling could boost the success of similar gerrymandering challenges across the South. And for our good news item for today's program, I think we'll cite the fact that Donald Trump's revised travel ban 
was a few weeks ago struck down a second time by a second federal appeals court, which ruled against his executive order limiting travel to the U.S. from six predominantly Muslim countries. In this case, a three-judge panel from the San Francisco-based 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals said the order lacked a sufficient national security justification and violated immigration law. The judges said Trump exceeded the authority delegated to him by Congress. We should point out, as many have done before us, that included among those countries in the Muslim travel ban was not the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. As you may or may not be aware, it was money and personnel primarily from Saudi Arabia that led to the 9-11 attacks. But you knew that, didn't you? Oh, by the way, as an addendum to Jefferson and Beauregard Sessions III's efforts against marijuana, we forgot to mention that he's now taking on medical marijuana. Specifically, Sessions has asked lawmakers to undo federal medical marijuana protections, arguing that the bipartisan 2014 Rohrabacher Farr Amendment, which prohibits the Justice Department from interfering with laws in the 30 states that have legalized medical marijuana, was unwise, quote, in the midst of a historic drug epidemic, unquote. Some have pointed out that the drug epidemic that Sessions refers to is the alleged opioid epidemic allegedly currently raging in the country. I'm surprised to note that arch-conservative representative Dana Rohrbacher was behind this, and he has said that this move would harm veterans and other suffering Americans who are helped dramatically by medical marijuana. You know, let's take a jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. of the week magazine it was a good week last week for achieving new heights when alex honold became the first person to complete a free solo climb of yosemite's 3000 foot el capitan rock face without ropes or harnesses just using his hands and feet to clamber up in just four hours said honold it feels a little outrageous and it is how is that humanly possible that is a rhetorical question. We don't know the answer. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the greatest show on earth after Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus staged its final performance, bowing to pressure from animal rights groups and ending its 146-year run. Said trapeze artist Peter Gold, I'll have to look for a job. And no, we don't envy him trying to find new employment. And finally, it was an ugly week a few weeks back for avoiding the poll tax after a New York City strip club attempted to dodge a $3.1 million state tax bill by claiming its exotic dancers could be classified as sex therapists. As such, they would not be subject to taxes, but a tax tribunal rejected that argument and said that the penthouse executive club must now pay up. We want to talk in a minute about the attack on the USS Liberty, which took place 50 years ago this month in June of 1967. But before we do that, let's just take a slight digression into this medical study, which may or may not have implications for President Donald J. Trump. We do not, in fact, know Mr. Trump's testosterone levels, but we would note 
that researchers at Caltech have concluded that testosterone may make men less, less likely to think before they act. Researchers gave 243 mostly college-age male volunteers a dose of testosterone gel or a placebo and asked them to complete a short, untimed test that assessed their cognitive reflection. Questions included things like, a bat and a ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? The incorrect gut response is $0.10. Cents. But the correct answer, which people generally come up with only after a little bit of thought, is five cents. The men who received testosterone answered the the men who received testosterone answered about twenty percent fewer questions correctly in the tests, which were coupled with a basic math task to control for arithmetic skill than those in the placebo group. They also gave their answers more hastily. Colin Camerer, the behavioral economist at Caltech, said this disparity may be because testosterone boosts confidence, which could eliminate the self-doubt that prompts people to reevaluate their decisions. The testosterone is either inhibiting the process of mentally checking your work, he said, or increasing the intuitive feeling that I'm definitely right. All right, in the time we have left, let's talk about the attack on the USS Liberty, which took place in June of 1967. I highly recommend, if you've never heard about this incident, or if you have, either way, to go online and look at the BBC documentary that was done at, I believe, the 35th anniversary of the event 15 years ago. We tried to reach out to some of the survivors of the attack um, and did not receive any response back, so... We're going to keep trying, but in the meantime, I think I'm going to quote from the summary, chapter 7 of Body of Secrets by James Bamford, wherein he details what happened in, well, in astonishing detail, in far more detail than you actually see in the BBC documentary. Frankly, we're pretty hard-pressed to cover this in 15 minutes, but let's, let's just do the best we can. I'll wager that an awful lot of you are going to be hearing about this episode for the first time. But here's the deal. The National Security Agency is tasked with monitoring communications of, um, well, supposedly of people in other countries. It's claimed that when people in other countries talk to people here in the U.S., well, they may inadvertently pick up, uh, pick up conversations. But the truth of the matter is, you and I, well, maybe not literally, but... <laughs> Figuratively speaking, you and I, American citizens, are being monitored by the National Security Agency. They just don't want to admit it. And no, we're not going to go into that today. Suffice it to say that the NSA has a job to do, and it is an important job, and it is a necessary job for a modern nation to have somebody do. There are ships. Well, there, there's various ways that you can monitor electronic communication. Uh, this, you know, Edward Snowden has been outlining for us uh, the degree to which electronic communications are, are listened to, looked into. But in the old days, before we had an internet, the main methods were to listen to radio waves. In his original book, The Puzzle Palace, Bamford pointed out that when they first started looking at uh, ways to eavesdrop on communications back in the 1930s, 
uh, it was agreed that a telephone was an instrument by which one had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Therefore, wiretaps, that phrase we're so familiar with, it's somewhat archaic now, were authorized specifically to tap into private communications via phone or other means. But if you were communicating via radio waves, it was assumed that you did not or could not have that expectation of privacy, and therefore, something sent out on the airwaves was fair game. And as far as I know, that's pretty much how it's been over the decades. But I digress. Back in 1967, things were heating up in the Middle East. The U.S. decided that it needed some eavesdropping. It needed to get some electronic communications gathered in the area off the coast of Israel. The USS Liberty was a spy ship. It was tasked at that time with sailing off the coast of Africa and listening to what communications it might gather. (coughs) But as tensions rose in the Middle East, they were asked to sail post-haste to Spain, pick up some Arabic linguists, and moved to a position off the Israeli coast. By way of review, on May 17th of that year, 1967, Egypt evicted UN peacekeepers and then moved troops to the Sinai border with Israel. A few days later, Israeli tanks were reported on the Sinai frontier, and the following day, Egypt ordered a mobilization of 100,000 armed reserves. On May 25th, Gamal Abdul Nasser, the president of Israel, blockaded the Straits of Tehran, thereby closing the Gulf of Aqaba to Israeli shipping and prohibiting unescorted tankers under any flag from reaching the Israeli port of Elat. The Israelis declared the action an act of aggression against Israel and began a full-scale mobilization. Now, as the NSA's ears strained for information, Israeli officials began arriving in Washington. Nasser, they said, was about to launch a lopsided war against them and they needed American support. Said James Bamford, it was a lie. In fact, as Menachem Begin admitted years later, it was Israel that was planning a first strike on Egypt. Begin said in 1982, we had a choice. He was at that time Israel's prime minister. Said Begin, the Egyptian army concentrations in the Sinai approaches did not prove Nasser was really about to attack us. We must be honest with ourselves. We decided to attack him. Noted Bamford, has had Israel brought the United States into a first strike war against Egypt and the Arab world, the results might have been calamitous. The USSR would almost certainly have gone to the defense of its Arab friends, leading to a direct battlefield confrontation between US and Soviet forces. Such a dangerous prospect could have touched off a nuclear war. Noted Bamford, with the growing possibility of U.S. involvement in the Middle East war, the Joint Chiefs of Staff needed rapid intelligence on the ground situation in Egypt. Above all, they wanted to know how many Soviet troops, if any, were currently in Egypt and what kind of weapons they had. Also, if U.S. fighters were to enter the conflict, it was essential to pinpoint the location of surface-to-air missile batteries. Several months before... The NSA's, what was called G-Group, had drawn up a contingency plan which would position the Liberty off of Africa's Gulf of Guinea, but actually positioning her to be far enough north that she could make a dash for the Middle East should the need arise. Despite the advantages, not everyone agreed with that plan. 
Frank Raven, described as the G Group chief, argued that it was too risky. The ship will be defenseless out there, he insisted. If war breaks out, she'll be alone and vulnerable. Either side might start shooting at her. I say the ship should be left where she is, but he was overruled. On May 23rd, having decided to send the Liberty to the Middle East, G Group officials notified the NSA's man at the Joint Reconnaissance Center, the JRC. The JRC is a unit within the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is designed to coordinate air, sea, and undersea, undersea reconnaissance operations. So it was that at 3.45 a.m. on that day, Lieutenant Jim O'Connell woke to a knock on his stateroom door. The duty officer squinted as he read the message in a red glow of emergency light. Still half asleep, he mumbled a curse and threw on his trousers. It was a message from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. O'Connor recalled telling his cabin mate, whoever heard of the JCS taking direct control of a ship? Within minutes, reveille sounded and Liberty began to shudder to life. Less than three hours later, the skyline of Abidjan disappeared over the stern as the ship departed Africa for the last time. For eight days at top speed, the Liberty made for the city of Rota, Spain, where it was to load technical support, material, and supplies, and then head to the eastern Mediterranean to monitor the situation between Israel and Egypt. Commander McGonagall of the Liberty received orders in Rota, Spain, to deploy just off the coast of Israel and Egypt, but not to approach closer than 12.5 nautical miles to Egypt or 6.5 to Israel. On June 5th, 1967, 7.55 Sinai time, Israel launched virtually its entire air force against Egyptian airfields, destroying, within 80 minutes, the majority of Egypt's air power. On the ground, tanks pushed out in three directions across the Sinai toward the Suez Canal. Fighting was also initiated along the Jordanian and Syrian borders. Simultaneously, Israeli officials put out false reports to the press saying that Egypt had launched a major attack against them and they were defending themselves. Noted Bamford, building an ever-larger curtain of lies around Israel's true intentions, Abba Iban, the foreign minister, accused Egypt of starting the war, and then went on to lie to the U.S. ambassador about Israel's goals, which had all along been to capture as much territory as possible. The GOI has no, repeat, no intention of taking advantage of the situation to enlarge its territory and hopes that peace can be restored within present boundaries. Finally, after about a half hour of deception, Iban brazenly asked the United States to go up against the USSR on Israel's behalf. When the Soviets got word of what was taking place, the hotline was used. Soviet Premier Alexei Kosygin sent a message to President Lyndon Johnson stating that it was convinced it was the duty of all great powers to secure the immediate cessation of the military conflict. He asked the U.S. to reign in Israel. Lyndon Johnson decided he was not going to do that. Now, it should be noted that the United States Navy sent out a warning notice to all ships and aircraft in the area to keep at least 100 nautical miles away from the coasts of Lebanon, Syria, Israel, and Egypt. But the Liberty was on an espionage mission. Unless specifically ordered to change course, Commander McGonagall would continue steaming full ahead. On hearing that war had started, Gene Sheck, an official at the NSA's K-Group section, which was responsible for managing the various mobile collection platforms, became increasingly worried about the Liberty. Responsibility for the safety of the ship, however, had been taken out of the NSA's hands by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and given to the Joint Reconnaissance Center. And NSA analysts were highly worried about the fact that the Liberty was steaming toward the war zone. And they should have been worried because of what then transpired, which was 
which was that while a dozen miles off the Israeli coast, the Liberty got visited by Israeli warplanes. It should be noted that the Stars and Stripes was flying very prominently. So when the Liberty got buzzed by Israeli warplanes, nobody on board was terribly worried. We were, after all, Israel's main ally. And it would be very clear to any observer that the Liberty was a spy ship, not a warship. Now, it should be noted that the Liberty being a spy ship, and since there's other ways of monitoring communications, we now know for a fact that the Liberty was positively identified by the Israeli Air Force as a U.S. ship, a non-combatant, and yet orders went forward to attack it. Three motor torpedo boats were launched from Israel. They were armed with 30-millimeter cannon ammunition, rockets, and even napalm, in addition to torpedoes. I'm not going to go into great detail because we don't have time to really outline what happened in great depth, but suffice it to say that the warplanes and torpedo boats first shot up the communications equipment on board the Liberty and then attempted to sink her with torpedoes. Witnesses reported that when lifeboats were put into the water, they were machine-gunned. Lieutenant Commander David Lewis, in charge of the NSA operations on the ship, later said, It appears to me that every tuning section of every high-frequency antenna had a hole in it. It took a lot of planning to get heat-seeking missiles aboard to take out the entire communications in the first minute of the attack. If it was a mistake, it was the best planned mistake that's ever been perpetrated in the history of mankind. 34 American servicemen were killed in the attack, and 171 more were wounded. It should be noted that no U.S. naval vessel since World War II had suffered a higher percentage of battle casualties than the Liberty. Bamford notes that according to interviews and documents obtained for Body of Secrets, the senior leadership of the NSA, officials who had unique access to the secret tapes and other highly classified evidence, were virtually unanimous in their belief that the attack was deliberate. They strongly believe that Israel feared what the Liberty might have intercepted and therefore ordered it killed, leaving no survivors. When the USS Liberty did get off a cry for help, the U.S. fleet, hundreds of miles to the west, did scramble jets to go to its aid. Apparently, when Israel, monitoring those communications, heard that the jets were coming, they hightailed it back to Israel. What they did not know was that people high in the command possibly Robert McNamara, possibly Lyndon Johnson. I guess opinions vary on this, but somebody very high up, probably Lyndon Johnson, ordered the Jets recalled. He was later quoted as saying he was not going to embarrass a United States ally. Luckily for the Liberty, despite torpedo holes in its side, it did not sink, and it was eventually rescued. It's worth noting that everybody on board was told they could not talk about what happened even to their family, and the people on board were then broken up and sent to various parts of the world. Inquiries were conducted by Congress. It was concluded that this all been an unfortunate accident. The fact of the matter is, it was no accident. As I think you will agree, if you take the time to read Body of Secrets or check out that BBC documentary, or simply go online and noodle around a bit and see what turns up. There's a lot that could be said about this incident. We've just scratched the surface, but I hope in the weeks and months to come we will find somebody, some survivor of that attack, who will talk to us directly. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. 
I am your host, Douglas Everett. You have been listening to Radio Parallax, and we very much hope that you will do yourself a favor and learn about this most unfortunate incident that took place 50 years ago. It has been claimed by our government and the government of Israel that this whole thing was an unfortunate accident, but that's simply not a possible explanation. The Israeli pilots radioed back, this is an American ship. And for whatever reason, they were told, your orders are to attack it, which they did. This kind of takes us back to where we started at the top of the program. It's hard to know actually sometimes what the hell really happens out there. And even a half century later, as is the case with the JFK assassination, as is the case with something that took place in the early 70s, the resignation of Richard Nixon, we just don't have the answers. But Radio Parallax believes you got to keep asking the questions. So we do. We'll see you next week at the same time. Try to stay cool in the meantime.